Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today, it's a treat, a delight, to have the Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights for Free Press. It's Nora Benavides. Nora, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Uh, and we're going to take- It's so wonderful to be here, Brian. I, I'm, I'm back. You're, Can you you're believe back. it? <laughs> I know, I came back. I came back, and I'm glad to have you back. So we're we're gonna take a short break to sell the stuff. You know, we, we can't exist without selling sh shit. So we'll do that, and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me, Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of the Digital Justice and Civil Rights from Free Press. She's also uh, formerly of PEN America and is one of the leading, uh, well, leading litigators when it comes to uh, First Amendment and uh, FOIA stuff. So we're, we're here. Pleasure to have you. And the first question, since it's Just Ask the Question, Nora, what is the breaking point for free speech? I know you you have an opinion on that. Oh. Well, I won't go into the history of it because that gets really boring. But, you know, courts not have to been me, but probably to, to everybody else, <laughs> to everyone else, except the few lawyers that listen to this. Um, you know, we have been trying to figure out what the breaking point is to free speech for centuries. We no one has a good answer. No one's ever had a good answer. Uh, going back to ancient Greece, no one had a good answer. Uh, you know, there were so many different competing ways of defining what free speech meant centuries ago. And the the kind of dominant definition has been increasingly, we should have the right to say what we want, the license to speak our minds. What we've lost is a kind of a quality of speech that everyone should have a voice and we all wanna to listen to that. And so over time, especially in the United States, this breaking point has actually moved further and further into dangerous territory. Uh, you know, over a hundred years ago, the uh, US said, mm, the breaking point to what is no longer acceptable is, is pretty narrow. It's right here, right next to us. And slowly courts have said and le legislators, you know, our judges have said, actually, let's move that definition, that boundary further away. Um, and now there is one major way that we look at this. And that is, you can say whatever you want, so long as it does not incite imminent lawless action. 
that's a pretty far boundary actually when you think about it yeah uh so that's where we're at i don't know if that's the right answer i really don't know right now well and it's it and it's also you know it's the infamous uh you can't shout fire in a theater when there's no fire so that's imminent lawless action but also imminent dangerous action that may not be lawless in and of itself but could be damaging to the public by saying it it can contribute to you know a riot (laughs) and that would be imminent lawless action so and look at where we are today i mean you know the internet age really blew all of this up Uh, i mean uh, and and I think the question we're kind of dancing around is what's going on with Donald Trump. Um, he is an incredibly influential voice. And unfortunately, what is the difference when someone like he, you know, gets online and says something that might encourage people to do something versus me or you? I know you're a, you're a VIP, so maybe you're uh, influential <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, but Joe Schmo <laughs> over here next to me. You know, Tell it to my mortgage banker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I I think uh, at least in the legal world we're we're struggling with that because the tradition is we want to protect, and as a free speech advocate, I always say we want to protect everyone's right to say what they want. But once that bleeds into influencing, inspiring others, and that language, those words are online where anyone can see them, and social media companies amplify them. Who's liable? Are social media companies liable because they've realized they can make more money with more eyeballs on Donald Trump's post? Or is he liable? Or both? Um, So not only do we have that question of where's the breaking point to free speech, but now we have the question of, you know, the buck stops with who? Is it that you're liable as an individual or all of these other major corporations liable? Well, and I always thought it was, you know, I, I... My freedom ends where your nose begins, right? That's the general idea. And that you're free to hate me. And I think the Supreme Court said it better. You're free to hate me. You're not free to act on that hate. So while I disagree with what you say, I will defend to death your right to say it. That Those were the kind of guiding principles behind free speech. But the thing I think that most people forget or mistake is that free speech has nothing to do, the First Amendment, has nothing to do with me and you in a disagreement. If I tell you to shut up, I'm not stifling your free speech. We're just two idiots fighting. It's when the government- Well, that's your favorite kind of argument, isn't it? Yeah, just shut up. Yeah. You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ad, ad hominem attacks seem to be yeah. just wonderful in today's day and age. But <laughs> as, 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 as vitriolic as that is, it's not the government becoming involved. And that's where your, your First Amendment rights are is is when the government gets involved in stifling your speech or in some way keeping you from from speaking your mind that's the problem so i how do you how do you let people know the, the differences well my biggest issue is miseducation um you know i see people online i meet with people and they always talk about their free speech rights online uh that you know they have the right to say whatever absent consequence from platforms I it it annoys me to no end to hear this. And I, I think we actually need a deeper way of engaging together about free speech. Ways that we listen. You can also say shut up. I, I'm here for that. But right. you know, at least it's in humor and it's in uh, I think, right, jest. And 
And well, I say a day, lot, Jess. I don't know about anybody exact, else. <laughs> I know. Exactly. I know why I'm here. Um, <laughs> but I think, oh, and, and now my dog's here. I would never tell you to shut up and I love dogs. So go ahead. You're good. Here she is. I don't know if she's here for the Trump stuff. There she is. <laughs> and she's got her seat in back. I love that. She took a seat. Um, you know, I think we all have to understand what the First Amendment means. And uh, when government is involved, traditionally, we've always wanted to avoid officials telling us what we can or can't do. You know, right. in the 1400s in the UK, part of one of the, like, the main reasons that the First Amendment was created was to fight what were these attacks way back in Britain. People who wrote right after the printing press was invented, they wrote about accountability, that the people should be able to govern themselves. What a novel and dangerous concept that was. And the people who wrote these things, what, the first one, his name is John Twine, he was executed for his writing. It hadn't even been published. It was just the papers that were literally drying in his house like this from the printing press. And officials broke into his home, violated what would in the US be considered his Fourth Amendment rights, and dismembered him for that writing. That is the very problem the US was seeking to address when it conceived of and when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution and our Bill of Rights. But look at where we are now. We're so far from something like that. Right now, the US government is uh, getting sued for trying to talk with social media companies about misinformation about the COVID vaccine that the platforms will not remove. That's now the question of where's the breaking point? Should government be influencing what people see online? Should platforms do a better job of moderating that? And that is the new free speech debate. So we're we're still using old ideas and conceptions of speech where the issues have morphed so much in the last hundred years, frankly, even 50 years. Yeah. So how do you how, how do you deal with that? I mean, it's one thing for me to print something and have the government come in and draw and quarter me. That's that's I'm not for that. <laughs> and it's quite another for the, the government to to be trying to deal with social media. It even I, I mean, I understand the concerns, but how do you how do you think it should be dealt with? I think that government officials should have the right to email social media platforms. And and then the question is, what are they saying in those emails? Are they using their power to coerce platforms. My perspective is, you know, I work with social media companies often. I try to pressure and encourage and um, reveal the harms that dangerous content causes to democracy and users. My sense is that the platforms are swayed by very little from external sectors. Members of Congress write to these platforms, civil society, researchers, they are not coerced. If government officials are using their bully pulpit to push for content to be removed, I think that's a problem. But the use of the term free speech to be free from censorship, when it's really a free pass for social media companies to not do their job, that's a problem. It, and that's I what think, I hope we can fight. I think free speech doesn't mean you have to be free from responsibility for your speech, right? 
Isn't that part of it? I mean, being responsible for what you say, you know, I, as a journalist, I have to, when I offer an opinion, I offer it with factual basis. When I, when I offer facts, they're vetted facts. So what I say, I'm free to say it, but I'm, I'm not free. I don't, I don't get a free pass if I'm irresponsible is what I'm saying. Isn't that a measuring stick by the response, taking responsibility for what it is that you say? It seems like people want to be free to say whatever they want and also free of responsibility for it. You know, you the word the phrase good faith is the part that really sticks out to me. Yeah. The, the social media companies now have opened up space for people to engage with each other, and they do not come to the table in good faith. They don't apply their own policies equitably across the globe, across language, or the difference between VIP users and me. You know, Donald Trump has most recently posted videos that contain blatant lies right. that he won the election in 2020. Um, does fact mean anything anymore? Uh, Facebook has simply allowed him to keep saying these things with no labels, no downranking. His content isn't removed. So to me, that responsibility should rest with a social media company that is not applying its rules equitably. Um, and that's a, a, a form of good faith. Then there's the good faith that someone like Donald Trump would bring or should bring as a leader who is supposedly tasked with thinking about the good of the people. He didn't think about the good of the people for four years. In fact, he picked and he chose what was acceptable speech, acceptable things to talk about in the public square. You know better than anyone the yeah. consequences to journalists when authoritarian-leaning tactics result in censorship. But censorship has become this kind of catch-all when people are hurt. They feel censored when someone else has an opinion. And that is not what free speech means. It's the opposite. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me tell you, there are plenty of people who argue that it's not. But I, I get you. And it, All right. So let's, before we go to break, the last thing I want to talk about in, the, in this uh, section is when we're talking about free speech and unfettered speech, there is a difference and, and lay out, you know, we, we've taught, we've kind of danced around that. What's the difference between free speech and unfettered speech? What do you think it is, Brian? I want to hear what you say. I'm asking you. <laughs> I get to ask the questions. <laughs> I'll give you mine after you give me yours. I'll show I, you I mine if you it. show me yours. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, to me, free speech is exactly how it sounds. And it is the ability to speak your mind, to be heard, and to listen. Unfettered is a kind of expectation of bravado and interest in saying something absent consequence. That's what concerns me. We have moved from a conception of free speech to unfettered speech, the ability yes. for people to say what they want and to feel that they should have the right to say what they want, absent consequence. I have the right to say whatever I want, frankly, to you, to anyone else, but you have the right then to react. You have the right to listen to me, to reject it, to any number of consequences that would flow from my unfettered speech. 
And this is sort of the unfettered era that we have entered, which is chaotic, it's caustic, it's divisive, and everyone is always hurt by someone else. Oh, there's oh, yeah, the victim culture is huge. To, it, so for me, I look at, I, I view, tend to view these things almost mathematically. I, I Unfettered speech to me is a subset of free speech. It's, hmm. it's, it's, you're free to say it, but the problem is free response as as I said earlier, it's free responsible speech is different from unfettered speech. When I listen to, for example, Donald Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene or God forbid Lauren Boebert after she's, you know, done her soft porn bit in a, in a public theater, that type of speech is unfettered and free, but it's also by unfettered, untethered to reality, facts, or responsibility. So factual, responsible, tethered to reality speech is also free speech. And I think people confuse the two. I think it's, to your point uh, about responsibility, I think that people mistake the idea that, that I can say whatever I want and I'm free to say it and you're not free to respond to it. You have to accept it. And that's, so unfettered is also, um, and I guess another subset of that would be unfettered, un, un, unresponsive. They want yeah. unfettered, unresponsive speech. So I get to say whatever I want, shut up. And and that's, to me, it's it's like, we're, it's, it's the same thing as when, for example, and, and having been raised Catholic, I'm, I'm going to use my own faith. It's, it's like today, freedom of religion has morphed itself into I'm, I'm not only free to worship uh, as I want, but my freedom of religion allows me to tell you how to worship as I want. So it's it when you talk about morphing, I'm, I'm looking at that First Amendment, which is, you know, includes religion and free speech. Is, is has morphed into people being unfettered and, and unresponsible or irresponsible and wanting unresponsive and unresponsive ability, the ability to dictate to others how they believe freedom should be. And that to me is, that's, that's the, and that's why I think we have such a problem dealing with it today. As you said, it's, it's kind of changed from, you know, it's pretty easy when you print something and the government comes in and hacks your head off that, you know, Hey, that's wrong. <laughs> but when when we get down to nuances today in free speech, I think it's because of the internet, because of well, what we're doing right now, we're able to communicate to one another, but we're not actually in physical contact with each other, and you know, or within you know, in the same room, and that mm -hmm. changes speech as well, because it's it's far easier to go, all right, I'll just delete that, is uh, then having to be in front of someone and defend what it is that you say. So I, I think it's it's created nuance. Our our wonderful uh, world of technology has created a nuance in free speech that uh, people do not take into account when they deal with the issue. It's, it's just a black and white issue with them. I get to say whatever I want. Well, and ironically, our isolation from each other in the digital age is uh, more obvious than it's ever been. You know, yeah. in early United States communities, people were still divided. It wasn't like now is a more divided time, uh, but we're more aware of it. We're more able to see the receipts. When people right. are fighting online, when January 6th occurred, there's evidence everywhere you look now because we're hyper-connected. 
And despite being hyper-connected, we're very isolated from each other. And it makes our conception of rights very individualistic. I have the right to say what I want, absent consequence. And that thinking has moved so far beyond and frankly far away from a conception of participatory democracy where we are all in this together yes. we don't we don't all live with that uh, not to sound corny but i mean we just don't we don't all embody that because we've moved into this i think covid played a role of people really thinking about their own human physical practice, you know, my masking, what does that mean? If the government's telling me to mask, does that violate my individual rights? We're all in our homes alone, you know, wiping everything down. Uh, <laughs> I can only speak for myself, you know? Um, I see and, you've and met my mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we, it's just ironic, ironic that this is what this, this whole, the digital, you and me connecting on Zoom, we're connecting, but we're very far away from each other and right. played out over millions and millions of people. We've just kind of gone, we've turned inward instead of really opened up to be more community. I agree. And on that wonderful note, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the future. And of course, our, our favorite bugaboo, the court and Donald Trump and his ability to solve free speech. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And it's a joy, like I said earlier, to have back to the program, Nora Benavides. Nora, thanks for being here again. Thank you again for being here. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Yeah, this might be my last time. I'm always afraid uh, who knows what I say. No, it'll be my last no, time on the show. You have free speech. You can say anything <laughs> you want. <laughs> there we go. And it's recorded. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's my question going forward. Donald Trump has said that, you know, if there's a gag order on him, it's going to be stifling his free speech. Uh, and this is in the case in, uh, well, he's facing 91 felony charges in four jurisdictions, but in particular, it's the one in D.C. where there, um, uh, the judge has said that she may, you know, gag him. And there's been a gag order order act uh, asked for by the prosecution. Um, does that indeed violate his free speech rights? Mm. He loves to claim that his free speech rights have been violated at every turn. Um, yes, he does. A, a limit. <laughs> and why wouldn't he? I mean, before yes. I even get to the question, it's so evocative. It's so it's so moving to feel like someone else's rights were violated and, and that the man didn't let them speak. I mean, it was it's the most successful spin campaign I've ever heard. Donald <laughs> Trump, one of the most watched, observed uh beloved or hated people quoted, uh, and, most off quoted too and you know with more airtime on television than uh, jerry seinfeld i think you know and he's somehow not able to speak 
so it's it's a great line. It's just a great campaign he's run, frankly. And he's succeeded at doing this for years. No, his free speech rights are not violated because he cannot talk about some of the potential criminality or lack thereof associated with one of his trials. But it's a great line and it plays so well to his fans. It plays well because they continue to build him up as this uh, this hero that's the little guy. You know, it's a David and Goliath story and he's just ridden that to uh, to victory more than, more than once. <laughs> he wants to be both David and Goliath. Um, exactly. But, but you mean it's not a violation of his free speech to keep him from threatening potential jurors or in trying to <laughs> intimidate them? I mean, well, think about it. You know, there are so many various duties people take on in the legal process. Think of jurors. Sadly, as a lawyer, I've never been a juror. I've always wanted to. Never been asked. Just it's so depressing for every, me. I'm waiting. Every time I've been asked as soon as I sit down and go through the voir dire, uh, voir dire then they they ask me, um, so what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a reporter. Uh, move this. We want to get rid of this guy. <laughs> I've never even been called. I don't know what stain is on my name. I'm so sad. I'm waiting for it. I know I'll get rejected. They'll dismiss me like they did you. Um, they always dismiss. I would love to sit on in a, in a trial, I but I've never... I never get past the first question or second question. Like, it's your uh, civic duty. It's all of our civic duty. I love it. Yeah. But but as a juror, there are limits on things you can do during a trial. Right. Uh, those are just frankly ethical boundaries because the trial exists in a very particular venue. The court, the rules around the court, your conduct as a juror, that extends to the lawyers, that extends to the judge. There are all of these ways that the people involved in a trial can't talk about that. Uh, and the even the potential uh, threat that Trump has said he may not be allowed to talk about something is really a way to deflect away from the deeper questions that he, in fact, incited a group of people to take election ballots from Congress while they were being certified. That's what was happening. And it's it's his it's his defense. It makes yeah, sense. Well, I mean, the, the, if you, I always tell people just read the indictment. No one wants to read the damn indictment, and they go, "Well, that's just one side." I go, "All right, look, I I hate to try to explain to you what the process is, but there's a reason why there's one side, because you know you don't want the government to have the ability, like you said in the first segment, to walk into your house and hack your head off." If they don't like what you do, they have to present facts before a grand jury of people who go, okay, uh, I see enough here. You can indict them. And now they have to put up a defense. You don't have to defend yourself until you're indicted for doing something. You can, in there are many cases, I know the argument that, you know, a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. I've heard it said many times, but I've also seen many times where indictments weren't handed down. That, you know, mm -hmm. that, that there were investigations and the grand jury said, there's not enough here. Yeah. We're not going to indict. And that happened. You don't know this, Brian. My first job was uh, in Georgia at the attorney general's office. And I worked in the special prosecution division. I uh, think I do know this. I think we talked about this before, but go ahead. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah but and, go ahead. Uh, I worked on uh, very, you know, high level public official crimes and white collar cases. I presented before grand juries. Uh, 
I, you know, at that time I was such a new young, uh, lawyer. I was working with other lawyers who would come in with me and to present before the grand juries just to even get through the door as a lawyer on the prosecuting side to present before a grand jury, the potential for a case to be indicted. You need to have witnesses, evidence, um, various legal documents behind you that have enough footprint, enough of, you know, meat on the bones. Yeah. And and then once an indictment comes down, well, first of all, you wait. You actually have to wait once you present to the grand jury. I wasn't presenting on cases as high profile as Donald Trump's indictment. The level of scrutiny and the precision needed to get those indictments through is so high, I can't even fathom it. So right. to hear him claim that somehow the case got away from prosecutors, that uh, it's just in shambles as a court system uh, byproduct, really plays into the lack of education most of us have about the legal system. So yes, read the indictment and read a diversity of news sources about the coverage, you know, about what's really going on with these cases. Some people don't know that there's a DC case and there's the Georgia case. There are a number of criminal charges he's facing in different jurisdictions. Yeah, four, four, four different, Manhattan, mm -hmm. Georgia, uh, mm -hmm. uh, DC and uh, Florida. Yes. I mean, that guy's got some trouble ahead. That's, that's and I mean, everyone keeps all oh, he's they'll never get him. They'll never get him. And I keep saying, look, Donald Trump may be many things, but he's not Neo in the Matrix. He can't dodge 91 bullets coming at him, you know, like he's in slow-mo and, and he can do it. I, I mean, these are some very and if you read the ones in Georgia in particular. It's yeah. frightening to me. Not only did they do everything that they claimed, and here's where the free speech part comes in. Look, you're free to try to deceive me. You know, I guess that's part of your ability to speak. You can try to deceive me. As a reporter, it's my duty to try and report the facts. And if I am in error, absence of malice, I, I'm free to make those mistakes. If I maliciously make those mistakes, I could be sued for libel. There, there are all kinds of recriminations against reporters that are available. There's nothing really, a, Donald Trump can be indicted, I suppose, if he lies on the stand, but otherwise he's free to, to try and lead you astray. But if you read the facts of the indictments in the jury, and these are, these are vetted facts, these are witnesses that came forward. There are recordings mm -hmm. that show it. There's paperwork that backs it up, which all led to the indictment that he's facing. If you do that, you will see that Donald Trump tried to steal the, the and, and tried to manipulate the results in Georgia. He tried to steal boxes, ballot boxes. He sent a, a and this is on tape and by witnesses, Ruby, uh, I forget her last name and her daughter. They He sent a pastor from Chicago to drive yeah. down to specifically intimidate her and try to get her to back off. If you cannot accept that the free speech that he claims defend is his defense to lie, if you cannot accept that there are consequences for speech, then you're going to have a hard time, I think, understanding that there are consequences for Donald Trump's actions in Georgia, and therein lies the trouble. 
I'm glad you bring it back to free speech because it's it's what we talked about that at the beginning of our segment. He has the right to say it and other people have the right to hear him say it. But there are other consequences. There are social media consequences or there should be. There are consequences legally and there should be. Those are the domino effects that he believes should not exist. Ironically enough, Donald Trump is no stranger to using the legal system to bully other people. Yes. And what's so interesting is over the course of his career before he became president, he and his various corporate subsidiaries filed slap lawsuits and defamation claims against over 400 individuals. Yeah. That, the, all of those were attempts to silence people. So he knows how to actually wield these various claims when he wants to silence other people. That's a bully. Like, that's what we're looking at. Yeah. And explain for, now I know because I've worked on anti-slap legislation for years, but I'll let you explain what slap legislation is. Sure. Um, Donald Trump used a lot of different claims when he would sue people. Um, libel, uh, slander, any other kind of claim that would chill someone in receiving that lawsuit into cutting off what they were doing. Journalists are often one of the most common recipients or defendants of slap suits. They're investigating, let's say, a certain issue in a local, you know, county. And they try to dig into that. And someone comes back at them and says, you know what? We're suing you. You can't look into yeah. that. And there are, in very unique instances, times where a kind of defamation suit is warranted. That's very real once in a while. I've seen it, I've worked on it, but a lot of times when people are in power and use these types of suits against others, it is to chill them into uh, a kind of inaction. Right. And most people can't afford to defend it. Exactly. You know, they can't afford to do anything to say, wait, it's my right to look into this issue of corruption in the city. Because you can't afford to do anything defending yourself, journalists and others often just stop speaking. And so there's now this push uh, to defend against these lawsuits. Um, and that's a really interesting and worthy endeavor. Lawyers yeah. around the country, some in Texas have been leading this for a long time, looking at how you create protections for people when they do get sued. Yeah, SLAP is, stands for, the, for those who don't know, it says Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. So for example, like I'll, I'll be uh, investigating uh, like Dow Chemical, you know, we, we did a, um, when I was, believe it or not at Fox, uh, did a, a large investigation in the chlorpyrifos and a couple of, uh, organophosphates that were used and it caused uh, a lot of problems with, uh, people who had used them, including all kinds of medical problems. And it was all over the country. And when we started that, we were threatened with a lawsuit, uh, and because Fox did have deep pockets and Dow had deep pockets, Dow realized they were going to spend a lot more money than they wanted to. And so then they just came back and attacked me personally after we finished the uh, the, the investigation. But anti-slap is just it for small newspapers, especially if you're a small if you're working at a small newspaper and you start investigating, like you said, the city or maybe it's a, a developer. And as soon as you start investigating them, they slap you with a lawsuit. 
then a slap lawsuit. Yeah, they slap, slap you with a slap. They slap you with a slap. You get a double slap. If they do that, you're screwed, blued, and tattooed. It's almost impossible for you to continue. And so a lot of people like yourself, Nora, and then and for people who don't understand, it's it's attorneys like Nora and it's uh, and Mark Zaid, who I know, and Ted Boutros, people like you who defend reporters. Small organizations can't afford to defend their free speech rights. And so it's incumbent on, we call uh, attorneys in the business, the First Amendment warriors. That's what, you know, you're, you're going to work for us to help us do our job. Without that, a lot of investigation wouldn't get done. And, and look, by and large, most national stories have uh, local roots. So if, you know, when you're finding out about poisoning water or problems with infrastructure, those all start out as local stories. And then you start putting together, there's a local story in Oklahoma, one in Wyoming, one in DC, one in you know Maine, and you start looking at the root cause of all of it. And that's when it becomes a national story because uh, the local reporters have done the job. And without the ability to do that, a lot of the things that you find about nationally, you would not find out about. Ironically, I feel like this whole segment is just uh, the the irony segment. You know, there's <laughs> the flip side, like Fox News that had to pay out over seven hundred million dollars for the the very similar kind of case when uh, Dominion, one of the ballot companies, uh, said that Fox was promoting lies about its technology and that it had influenced the election to falsify ballot results. Um, there was extensive, extensive discovery in that case. And on the flip side, that was a really legitimate set of claims brought. So, you know, slap suits are often used to silence the most vulnerable and often freelance, often women, often young, inexperienced journalists who are trying to dig into something that an individual or an entity in power does not want explored and unearthed. That's where the danger rests, that it's a way of maintaining a narrative and people are not allowed to know about the alternatives. And, and how, how often do you think that goes on? More than any of us know. That's the, that, and, and honestly, that's what's frightening to me as I think we don't know the extent to which it goes on because a lot of people will cave. And so a lot of things that we don't know, we continue not to know, and it'll take years for it to come, you know, to be surfaced. Uh, and and ex- for example, the chlorpyrifos thing, this organophosphate investigation that I did took 20 or 30 years for it to come to fruition. Yeah. And Donald Trump actually, the last part of it, and in case you don't know, banning organophosphates, most of us alive have traces of it in our system. And this is the type of uh, insecticide. If you've ever had like, a, you know, you buy an insecticide at the at the local hardware store and you spray a wasp and the wasp goes down, just drops that, you know, dead immediately. <laughs> that's, that, that's an organophosphate usually and it kills bugs, but it's also... It, it, also almost the same chemical compound used to gas prisoners at Auschwitz. And yeah. it, it was diluted and used to kill bugs. It ends up in the, it, it sprayed on crops out in the open. It used to be used indoors. They banned it for indoor use because for example, in Missouri, there was a, a couple of play, and this happened all over the country, but how I got into it was a, a courthouse in Missouri where 
28 people worked and 27 of them came down with chemical lupus after one guy sprayed wow. a, spray, sprayed just one can into a, a ductwork where there was a wasp nest and it spread all over the, the building and all of them came down with chemical lupus. So we got a ban, you know, indoors. The outdoor ban on, on you know, like uh, hops and barley and, and uh, you know, crops out in the environment was supposed to, that final ban was supposed to occur under Trump and it didn't. It did now occur under Biden. But that's been 30 years of, of you know, trying to put it together because every time someone moved forward investigating it, someone got slapped. And, and the idea that reporters are free to report has almost vanished from from the planet, I think. I think one of the biggest, and that's what I want to talk about in the third segment before we go to break, is what are the threats and what are the future to reporting? So I'll, I'll let you wrap that up before I we I think it's break. really good, Brian. I, I was going to make a joke because I love to make jokes with you, but go, go I for actually- it, baby. <laughs> it's actually so good that you you go down, you know, we're, we're doing a free speech segment and then you bring up science and chemicals and everything. And what I love is that it really shows- listeners uh that something that you could frankly just not think twice about not care about because it's not relevant to you is incredibly personal and dangerous and if you know someone affected by it it suddenly becomes real but if it's not reported on if there aren't vanguards you know kind of defenders for us on the front lines investigating trying to unearth this uh if officials are not thinking about the well-being of the public these things go unreported, underreported, and frankly, even silenced. And that's where the connection is so important. We have to make obvious and relevant for people why storytelling matters for communities. Why a story like that about these chemicals and the long, long history of when they've been banned and what the effects are, that's important to tell. Uh, so I'm eager to talk when we come back. Beautiful. We'll take a short break. We'll come right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me still is Nora Benavides. And Nora, we, when we took the break, we were going to talk coming into this segment about the future of uh, reporting and journalism and free speech. Uh, do you have hopes for it, or do you think we're in in a uh, a crisis mode, <laughs> for lack of better terms? Well, I contain multitudes. Uh, I'm always thinking about the potential crises, but I have a lot of hope. You know, we did so much good work in 2020. Uh, lawyers, civil rights experts, journalists, pollsters. Uh, we really held the line in 2020. So I actually am incredibly excited for the the, the wild chaos of what 2024 will bring. Um, giving you just a little table setting here. Uh, 
Yeah. 2024, we're going to see over 70 determinative national elections around the world. That is determining some major way that the country will be controlled and who will be in power. That's a lot of countries. That's a lot of elections. That's not even the local trickle-down elections happening around the yeah. world. And this is the most number of elections we have seen in the digital age, where people are on their phones. I have mine right here. And they're using this. See? They're I've got one too. <laughs> <laughs> they're using these phones for almost everything. Uh, more and more people aren't using Google search. They're using ChatGPT and BARD. And the digital threats are unparalleled. The potential for AI, artificial intelligence, to give you false information about a polling location, about a candidate, about a local election that maybe isn't even happening, we're not prepared for the chaos that will ensue. What we are doing is we're beginning to work with journalists, editors, social media companies to figure out what are the guardrails to put in place now, not in September of 2024, now. How can journalists actually embrace AI to maximize their time? It's not going to take your job. It will not take anyone's job. I'm not worried. I, I agree <laughs> with you. The people who know how to use AI, they'll take your job because they'll be able to do everything <laughs> faster. Yeah. So how do journalists begin to feel confident, comfortable working with technology? How do we make sure that the public is armed and ready, literate to understand what they're seeing online? How do we make sure election officials are not getting attacked physically and online? That's a big issue. And I'm excited for the work that we're doing. I really am. I think that it's the best time to be doing work for the public and in public service. God bless you. I, you know, I, I agree with you, but I'll amend it to this. I think if you know how to manipulate AI as a reporter, <clears throat> you have a leg up on everyone else. But the guy who has the ability to walk down to the, the cop shop, walk into the police department, meet with those people and know where the article, know where the, the files are that you can get that are public and can walk into a city council office and do that and knows how to use AI. That's the person I want to hire. I, I really believe that there's nothing that replaces human interaction and actual physical records that you can, can look at. Because I've seen, you know, as I've argued in court, I, I've, you know, when, when people want to, uh, remove, he's a lawyer now. I yeah, love it. I, All right. I've, actually, I've ordered, I've argued this in court and I've argued this in legislatures and been called upon to, and asked, and it's, to me, it boils down to this. Um, I can, and why, you know, like governments want to remove public accountability to report, you know, to newspapers. So, you know, public access notices and things like that, they want to do themselves on their own web uh, sites or on an app. And I argue that, look, I can, and I'll hold up a copy of a newspaper from 1850. I go, this is exists today as it existed in 1850. You can't hack it. You can't change it. It's finite. In a court of law, that's the rule. That's something you can point to. I said, I can go online and if I'm good, I can hack anything and I can change it. And that means it's ephemeral. I can go back into a story that I've mm -hmm. already written. I can mm -hmm. update it. 
but I can't do that with a newspaper. And so that to me is why there's always going to be a need for the written word somewhere. It's got to be written down somewhere. So I, I argue that that the person who understands the best of those both worlds will do better. Uh, and mm. I, I think that that's why newspapers will remain relevant, or at least I hope so. <laughs> and when people have local news representative of them and their community and what they care about, they're incredibly engaged. I mean, yes. so much research points to local news is one of the strongest determining factors in getting people to vote, be engaged, run for office. Uh, so I don't think it's going anywhere. I do think that the attempts and weaponization to thwart local news in particular has been part of a larger agenda to get people to be more disconnected. But I don't, I agree. I'm not seeing people buy it. In fact, in 2022, there was more fed up voter resilience than I've seen in a long time. People are wanting to engage. People want to connect again. They want to feel like they believe in something bigger than themselves. And I'm that's what makes me excited to do the work that we do. I, and me too. I We see vast news deserts across this country where the local newspapers don't exist anymore, but in their stead are local uh, news um, environments online that have sprung up. And some of them do occasionally print, and I'm all for that. But the idea of local news uh, has never gone away. And and there's a reason for that. Two people may disagree on you know national policy about anything, but I'll guarantee you everybody wants a paved road, the stoplights to work, would love to make sure that they know where the police department and the hospitals are. And by the way, why am I being charged 18 extra dollars for something locally that I don't have to pay for nationally. All of those things. And, and the biggest one that show this is the single biggest story. I'll say this, that shows me the need for local news. Whenever you start reporting about traffic light or speed cameras, people get pissed. And they want <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about stoves. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's one that was completely I, I I was like, what's the big deal about a gas stove? Who gives it? Oh shit? gosh, it's so contentious. Oh, yeah, over over a gas stove. There's no safe discussion anymore. Everyone's That's... got a hot take. But what mm -hmm. got me was all right. So we did a story. It was a local newspaper I ran, and we did a story on you know people were bitching about this one traffic camera. Why is it 150 mm -hmm. bucks if I blow the red light? So we started looking into it. The the county only got like 30 bucks of it. The rest of it went to the company that owned the stuff, the yeah. lights. And so we found out who they were. And it was a company in Florida that was a wholly owned subsidiary of a company in Georgia, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of a company in New York, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of a company in London, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of, get this, the Ben Laden group. I knew so, you were going to, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> that's, that's, so people were going, wait a minute. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> so, <laughs> and the county said, well, maybe we should not do this. And so people, you know, the, the end result was, you know, some of the traffic light cameras went away. And, so the, and people are real happy about that. Doesn't matter what your politics are. It, you say, you know, when it starts affecting you in your own pocketbook, that's when people care, I think. Uh, Brian, I think, you know, we get along so well because uh, we both want 
people to stay connected and engaged. That's really what it is. Yeah. And however far away the you know speed camera and stoplight issue might seem, it isn't. It's all connected to foreign affairs, to national security, to the decisions in rooms that you're not even allowed in and I'm not even allowed in. Oh yeah. Um uh, so that that's what's there's plenty of rooms I'm not allowed in. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, if Donald Trump had anything to say about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I wouldn't be allowed in this country if he has something. If he if he were to get reelected, I've got to look at foreign property. I'm just saying. Uh-oh. Oh no. Oh gosh. But uh so you you're hopeful for the future. What do you think uh specifically should happen in the next five years to to make your hopes come true or at least to begin to see those hopes yeah. going in, in the direction of reality i'd love to see journalism thought of as a public good i would love that that would make me happy i think it would make democracy healthier and it would inject conversation about all the things we're talking about today so that's one thing um I'd love to see our lawmakers and people in power, judges as well, thinking more, feeling passionate about that their mission, their North Star is more rights for more people. We're not in that right now. In fact, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing particularly state and local lawmakers, but at the federal level as well, we're seeing a kind of anti-democracy trend take hold. People are you know, not allowed to take out books from libraries about subjects that relate to, I don't know, a, a kid that thinks he might be gay or a scene that has a sex scene in a book now is banned. Um, you know, protest is considered criminal no matter what. Uh, right. Voting is potentially always rigged. There are these ways that our, our basic rights have somehow become really warped in our lawmakers' minds, and they drum up problems so that they can then solve them with bad legislation. And our courts are reinforcing it. So I would love to see in the next five years a kind of taking up, a kind of embracing that people who serve the public are doing it to make those people have more rights, more equitable rights all the time. And then I would love for us to talk about free speech more. This is my corny pitch that I, when you give me the mic, I'm going to say it. Say uh, it. You know, no one gets excited about those boring topics. And I want to light a fire. I want people to be so excited to hear someone and disagree with them. Because that's where fun conversation begins and it's where community then Oh, ends. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> See? But our human tendency is to shut off. And I'm like, what would we do if all of us thought that it was in the public good for discourse, for conversation, for frankly, imagining what's possible? We are not in the business of doing that. So I, I want us to look forward and get excited and get like a spark is lit. I think all of that you all of that you just outlined. I think there's one thing that in the next five years I'd like to see that would make a lot of that possible. And when we talk about antitrust legislation, I would like to see the media monopolies broken up. And Oh, this is a big topic, Brian. Yeah, I want more independent discussion. Huh? 
This is a whole different discussion. Yeah. Go for it. But I want more independent free speech. I don't think free speech is possible when 90% of what you see, read, or hear is controlled by a half a dozen companies. And mm. I don't think that uh, unless we have, uh, I, I want uh, Jamie Raskin's free press uh, uh, legislation, which I have supported for and spoke to him about for years, which is a national shield law. I'd like to see that enacted. I'd like to see, um, I, I would... <laughs> I would love to see not only the media monopolies broken up, but also a, a reinforcement or a reintroduction of the fairness doctrine across the uh, spectrum of the internet. And But before all of that, I don't think you're going to get anywhere because there are, today on this planet, there are twice the number of people as on the day that I was born and maybe a third of the number of reporters. So that's a huge problem brought about by media consolidation break up the media monopolies. And I think that would enhance free speech in ways. It was Ben Bagdickian at the Washington Post who once said, you cannot have diversity of thought and true free speech without a diversity of ownership. And I guarantee you, we don't have that today. And I'm, as much as people say, you know, it's the liberal media, there's no liberal bias in the media. It's all biased towards money. That's the history of the whole world, Brian. Yep. yep. I mean, you know, to end where we began, my my favorite conception of free speech is a term called isagoria, and it's an ancient Greek term, and it means everyone should be able to speak. In fact, in ancient Athens, because some people were so poor they couldn't make it to the public square, they were paid to speak because it was so important in society for everyone to have a voice. That is what we've lost. We have another conception of speech now. Um, in ancient Greece, the other term was parasia. That's what we have now. It's yeah. the license to say whatever you want. And I think this concept of isagoria, we have to return to. Part of that means fighting what we've fought for so long, which is consolidation of power and the utter narrowing of who's allowed to set the terms of our games, the rules of the road, um, which isn't just antitrust. It's, it's a bigger form of power mongering. And we've been fighting that for centuries. Um, so, I, you know, I'm... I'm eager for us to continue this conversation. Always. Certainly will offend each other. That's what I love. <laughs> well, I take offense at your offensiveness. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Look, Nora, I appreciate you being here. It's always fun talking with you, especially about these issues. And, you know, you're welcome back anytime. Mm -hmm. I, and, and I love having you. So thank you. Thanks for joining us. And we'll end on that note. And this is Just Ask a Question. Nora, where can we, I'll let you plug whatever you want. Oh, please. All right. If you want to support journalism as a public good, if you want to fight for your rights online, if you're angry about Elon Musk uh, and the way he's become one of those monopoly powers that sets the terms of our engagement, uh, check us out at freepress.net. And you can always check me out, Attorney Nora. I'm on every platform. <laughs> I love answering questions about free speech, love talking about 2024, whatever it is. And, and I, 
I got to tell you, I've been talking about free speech my whole life. And that's, that's always fun to do. And uh, at, now, but, you know, speaking of us, we got to have you back on to talk about that because I would love I, it. I am now on five different platforms where I used to only have to use one. So I'm well, going, that's the irony. You said you is, want to fight Monopoly, but now you're always exactly on these platforms. Right. That's the I irony know. I want to talk about. So, yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll have you back and we'll talk about it. This is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time.